Are you ready to hear some gospel today? If you are, then turn over to Mark 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start there, and then we're going to jump over to the parable of the wicked tenants over in chapter 12. But here I want us to get grounded in some thinking about Mark's gospel. Mark writes, and I'm reading from the NRSV version, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's quite a way of starting out your book or starting out your your document to say, I am writing the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. Think about that a minute. He writes that he is writing a gospel. He's not writing a short biography. He's not writing an anecdotal history. He's not writing any kind of entertainment or literature or a good summer read. He is, re- he is writing a gospel. And gospel is translated good news. In the Roman world, the good news was, uh, the Greek word for good news or gospel was uh, euanglion, which was the peace brought about by the emperor. But you see, when we look at the New Testament, it's got a very different connotation to it. Really, the connotation is the salvation of Israel brought about by the Messiah. But what I want us to do is to go back to the book of Isaiah and we swear we can read about what God says is good news or gospel. So go from Mark 1.1 and turn over to Isaiah 40. And while you're turning there, let me read Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, to kind of set us up. Mark writes, As it's written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. Now, if you're in Isaiah 40, take a look at verse 5, and I'm going to read verse 3 from Mark 1. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So you see, Mark is quoting Isaiah 40, verse 5. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, skip down to verse 9. 9 and 10 is a description of what that voice is crying out to say. Verse 9 says, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of what? Good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So we see that good news is about salvation, actually. Now, you can keep your thumb there and turn over to Isaiah 52, and it even becomes more clear in chapter 52, starting with verse 7, we read, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, or who brings the gospel, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And let's move on. 
Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy. For in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So Isaiah, writing 700 B.C. or so, he writes that the good news is that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now you turn back to Mark 1.1, and here is a gospel writer who says that he is writing about this gospel, and it involves Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. Now let's deal with the word Christ a minute. Christ in the Greek, or it comes from the Greek, and it means anointed. Well, it's, it's kind of like a poor equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is distinctly Jewish, and it was more or less a description for a coming Redeemer, a hoped-for Redeemer. Well, in translating or interpreting the Jewish scriptures into Greek, the gospel writers didn't have the word Messiah because it's distinctly Jewish, and so they adopted Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a description of who he was, and that's the way that Mark uses it. Then you go over to Son of God. Son of God is also a description. It's not really a title. It's a description of a special vocation. It's used of Israel. When you go to Hosea 11.1, Hosea writes, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the reason why Israel is called son of God or God's son is because it had a special vocation. And that vocation we see was to bring forth the Messiah, bring forth the Redeemer who would redeem the world. We see also in Psalm 2 that Israel's king was also called God's son. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. So the view here is what we might call election. And I know that is a loaded term these days. But the way that Mark is looking at it is that when he calls Jesus son of God, he's, he's saying that Jesus had a special vocation. And that special vocation involves what? Well, what we read before, the salvation of our God. Now, one thing that's interesting about Mark's first sentence is that he says he's writing the beginning of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you go back to the Greek, arche, that's the word that is translated. It can mean an authority figure who initiates activity. Now, isn't that cool? Because when you start reading Mark, he writes this sentence and you can, you can interpret it to mean, I am writing about Jesus Christ, Son of God, who initiates good news or the salvation of God. And then what's, what's the next line he writes? 
he starts writing about John the Baptist, his forerunner. Now, the quote from Malachi that's in verse 2 is that John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Lord coming back suddenly to his temple. And I believe that's Malachi 4. And so that's how Mark starts his gospel. He starts it very fast to say, here's what I'm writing about, and he gets right into it. Now let's go over to, um, actually, the subject matter that we're going to deal with today. Turn over to Mark 11, and we're going to read Mark 11, starting at verse 33, about a scene in the temple. And then we're going to go into the parable. Now in Mark eleven thirty three, Jesus meets some chief priests, scribes, and elders in the temple. Now let's read. Again, they came to Jerusalem. And as he, this is meaning Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? Now let's stop there a minute. And let's think about this a minute. You've got the chief priests, scribes, and elders, who are the leaders of Israel. And Israel at the time, they were the people of God. They were the called people of God. They were God's son. And these guys, because they're all men, these guys are aware of Jesus's ministry. The signs he is doing, the demons that are calling out his name and all that kind of thing. And when they they confront him in the temple and they say, by what authority are you doing these? And their thinking is, we are God's people. We are God's, the leader of God's people. And God's not going to do anything in the earth without coming through us. So who do you think you are? And Jesus responds to them. I said, well, I'll ask you a question. And you answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So he poses this to them. Did the baptism of John come from heaven? Or did it come from men? Answer me. Well, they didn't answer right away. Now, let's talk about John the Baptist. Because when you go back to chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, you see that he starts with John the Baptist, and there is no doubt with Mark that John the Baptist was the forerunner that was prophesied in Malachi. And also in Isaiah, which we read, he is the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. So Jesus says, hey, did he come from heaven? Or did he come from men? Now, they step away from Jesus, and they start talking with one another. And they say, well, if we say that from heaven, he will say, well, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of men or of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John truly as a prophet. Now notice that when they talk about, when they say amongst themselves, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then 
did you not believe him? That shows that they didn't believe him, right? I mean, and Jesus knows this, but that's why he poses the question. Was he from heaven or from men? So in order to avoid the question, they come back to him and they say to Jesus, well, we don't know. And Jesus says back to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, that sounds a little bit ambiguous, but then Mark launches into the parable um, in the next line. Well, I could say that Jesus launch, launches into the parable in the next line, but what Mark actually writes is, oh, well, let me say this. Let's back up a minute. And let me follow up with this when it comes to um, Jesus' question about John the Baptist. You see, it's, it's, a, it's an all-in or all-out question. Because if they say that John the Baptist was from heaven, you know, that, it, that, he, that he came about by God's activity, that this was, uh, he was the voice in the wilderness, then they'd have to say, they'd have to admit that John fulfilled Isaiah and Malachi's prophecies. They'd also have to admit that he was the voice crying in the wilderness and with Malachi, that he was the forerunner. Well, if he was a forerunner, then he was the forerunner to somebody, and John pointed his fingers right at Jesus. Because when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God. So if they say, if the chief priests and the scribes say, Well, he was from heaven, then they're pretty much admitting that Jesus is the Lord coming back to his temple. Salvation is through Jesus, and they didn't want to say that at all, and we're going to get into that. So, Jesus says to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things, and then he launches into the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, reading the next verse. This is interesting. Mark writes, then he began to speak to them in parables, plural. But really what we have here is we've got one. And then there's questions about paying taxes. So Jesus, it looks like Jesus gave them a few parables, but there was one that was important enough that, that God inspired marked right about, and it's the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, there are some parables that are kind of like one-offs, where there is one single point that Jesus is trying to make, but then there are some parables that are multi-layered, and this is one of those. So let's read through this. We'll read the whole thing through so we get, um, we get the big picture. And then we'll come back and we'll see the different layers going on of what Jesus is doing. So Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to, to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. 
But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. And when they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, let's go back through the parable and let's kind of break it down and see all the nuances and all the illusions that Jesus brings to bear on these leaders of Israel. The first thing is the vineyard. He starts out, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Now, when he says this, the chief priests and the scribes They hearken back in their minds to Isaiah 5, because there, there's a wine press too. And there the owner had built a watchtower and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to yield grapes. But in that prophecy in Isaiah, the owner, um, the, the vineyard starts to grow wild grapes, and since it grows wild grapes, the, the owner just lets it go to seed, just lets it go to pot. And that vineyard, uh, it, the vineyard is the house of Israel. It's a prophecy against the house of Israel uh, for its sin. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus starts off with what sounds like a repeat of Isaiah 5. And you know, the chief priests and the scribes, he catches their attention by that, but then he adds tenants. So you can go to Isaiah 5 and read it through. There are no tenants in it. And so he kind of does a, he does a 180 with them. He changes things up and he says, then the owner leased it to tenants and went to another country. Well, this is a bold move that Jesus is making, but he's doing it in order to make a point He's taking Old Testament scripture and applying it in a, in a brand new situation. And you see that all the time through, through the Gospels and actually Paul's epistles too. So let's move on. And the parable goes, When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect. But the tenants seized him and beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Owner sends another one, and this one they beat over the head and insult. Then he sends another, and that one they killed, and he sends more and more, and they beat them and kill them. Well, what's this sound like? 
What's Jesus hearkening to? What's the echo here? And the echo are the prophets God sent to Israel. In Luke 13, 34, Jesus is speaking about Jerusalem. He's crying over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Matthew 23, 34, Therefore I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. You see the illusion here. Jesus is speaking to the leaders of Israel. He's speaking to Israel, and he's talking about slaves being sent, but the, uh, the background is the prophets. So let's move on. The owner still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, when you're a reader of Mark's gospel, this resonates with you. Why is that? Because when you read Mark's gospel, In Mark 1, verse 11, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And a voice from heaven, a voice comes from heaven that says, You are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. So you see, Jesus said, well, the owner is sending his beloved son. And as a reader of Mark's gospel, you hear that resonance, you know, from the baptism. But not only that, you also hear it from the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark 9, 7, Mark writes, Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. So that's one thing about Mark being a gospel writer. The way that he puts his material together, it builds and builds and builds. It builds for the reader... Not so much for the chief priests, because, well, they might think, you know, listening to Jesus, and they said, well, beloved son, they, they might not get it. But as a reader of the gospel, you understand the import of that. Now, going back to the parable. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Now, on the face of this, you know, you think, well, this doesn't make any sense because tenants do not inherit land. What they do is they work the land and they're paid for their work. And then when their tenancy is over, they move on and the owner retains ownership of the land. So what's going on here? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's hearkening back to um, to Israel's hold on salvation. And that might sound kind of weird, but actually, when you go back to the book of Jonah, you see it pretty clearly. Now, remember Jonah. Jonah was this prophet who God speaks to him and says, I want you to preach to the Ninevites. Well, the Ninevites weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. So, Jonah, the Jewish prophet, is supposed to leave Israel, and he's supposed to go over to Nineveh, 
and preach because judgment was going to come on the Gentiles. Now, what does Jonah do? Well, he doesn't go over there and preach right away. In fact, he does everything he can to avoid it. He books a ship to Tarshish. Tarshish is on the other end of the earth. He's going the other way. In fact, uh, he's, he, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get out of the God's jurisdiction, so to speak. If he can get far enough away, then he doesn't have to answer this call, and he doesn't have to preach to these Gentiles. But we all know the story of Jonah is that on the way to Tarshish, there's a storm that arises. He's thrown overboard. There's a fish that swallows him, takes him three days and three nights, spits him out on the beach. And then Jonah, at that point in time, goes to Nineveh and he preaches and the whole city repents. The whole city. In fact, the word even says the animals repented. So, so what's the lesson? Well, a lot of times preachers take Jonah as, um, how would you say, uh, they preach him as a man who's disobedient to God, but that's not the purpose of the book or the story. The purpose is that Jonah is a prophet and he's acting out, consciously or unconsciously, an illustration about Israel's refusal to adhere to the gospel. And what's that? Well, Israel is hoarding salvation. You know, salvation, God wants his glory to cover the whole earth. And when you go back to the promise to Abraham, God said, through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Not just one, but all of them. But what we see with Abraham's descendants is that Israel didn't want to be a light to the world, didn't want to bring the, the gospel or the Lord to the nations. It wanted to bottle him up all for herself. So with Jonah, Jonah 4, listen to this. I'm reading verses 1 through 3. This is after Nineveh has repented, after God has relented on punishment. It says, but this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? Or isn't this what I said when I was still in Israel? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and ready to relent from punishing. So when he received the word from the Lord to go preach, he knew that God would relent on punishment. He knew that there wouldn't be judgment because Nineveh would repent. And what did he do? He went the other way. And that he is a type of Israel. And in fact, in verse 3, Jonah says, And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for it is better to die than to live. He is so overwrought with, with God saving Nineveh that he says, just kill me. I don't even want to live anymore. So you compare that, you see that echo it coming back in this parable. 
But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. It will just be ours. So going on with the parable, so they seized him, this is the son, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, when you're reading along, you can just read that and think nothing about it, but that is still another illusion. What's it to? Well, this illusion is to Jesus and his crucifixion. How so? Well, take that line, threw him out of the vineyard. Now, one thing, um, in fact, I don't even have this in my notes, but you know, in Galatians 3.13, where Paul says that Jesus became a curse. Well, when you, when you work all that through, becoming a curse is being cut off from the land and cut off from the people. And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was cut off. He was a man without a people, man without, um, outside the land, because he was cursed. Actually, he was a man without God. Um, but listen to this, because the writer of Hebrews touches on this point too. In Hebrews 13, 11 and 12, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the bodies of the animals used for sacrifices in the temple and talks about how they're, they're sacrificed, but then they're burned outside. Listen. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. So, you know, you go back up to the parable and, you know, this line here threw him out of the vineyard. Well, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him, and he throws this into the parable. It's not actually material to the parable, but it gives another layer where we as readers of Mark's gospel, we say, well, wait a minute, outside the vineyard, out of the vineyard, you know, cut off from the land. Oh, well, that was the Lord Jesus. Pretty cool stuff. Now, let's move on. Jesus then asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And you know, in my mind, I think he says that, and then he, he just lets it, it, he, he lets it stay there for a while. You know? I mean, I could see him kind of stomping his foot a little bit and say, you know, come on. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? And then he answers his own question. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, it's real interesting how this, this really is so accurate. He doesn't say he will come and kill the tenants. He says he will come and destroy the tenants. Destroy the tenants? Well, doesn't that mean kill? Well, not the way that it's written. Because the word destroy is apalese, and it means to ruin or to, or to render ineffective. Now think about that a minute. I'm going, the owner's going to come and ruin the tenants. He's going to come and render them ineffective, where they're just nothing anymore. 
not kill them. We have kill in all the rest of the parable, but not here. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Destroy the tenants. Well, he's talking about Israel. Now, we're in verse 12. We don't have time to go through it. But in Mark 11, we have, we have the section starting in verse 15. Now, the Bible editors call it the cleansing of the temple. And you know, this is where Jesus comes to the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I mean, he ransacked it. And our Bible editors have said that's the cleansing of the temple. The thing was, it wasn't a cleansing. It was a judgment. Jesus came in and as acting really as an Old Testament prophet, upends the temple to show that its days are over. Uh, pretty radical, pretty radical. But you see, Mark is making that point as a gospel writer. He writes that Jesus cleanses the temple in one chapter. In the very next chapter, he is, he's bringing us into the temple where Jesus is confronting the leadership to say, your days are over. They're done. Now, um, let me go back to Mark 11, and let me just make a point here. When Jesus ransacked the temple, Mark writes, he was teaching and saying, isn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice that, all nations. Not just one nation, all nations. Well, if you have one nation that is, uh, that is holding or hoarding salvation to itself, then, you know, then God's house can't be a house of prayer for all nations. It's, Israel was frustrating the, the plans of God. Now, Jesus says, but you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. A lot of times in preaching, this is related to those money changers. But think about this a minute. Those money changers were there, just happened to be there on the day that Jesus came in to announce that the temple, temple's days were over. You know, why would a Bible prophecy have anything to do with that, those particular guys, unnamed guys, uh, in the temple that day? You know, I'll tell you that I think that the den of thieves is actually referring to Israel because Israel is hoarding salvation. Actually, uh, Den of Thieves, it's relating to the tenants, and the tenants is relating to Israel's leadership. You're hoarding salvation. You're bottlenecking the plans of God. He can't get salvation out to the ends of the earth if it's all wrapped up in Israel. Now, let me also show you this. In Mark 15... Jesus is dying on the cross. And Mark writes in verse 37, Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Now, I know that that's usually used as a, uh, as a verse to say that, you know, God was hemmed in by the temple and then the curtain was torn so God's Spirit could go out to the world. Well, that's not the way that Mark writes this. He writes it as, this is the last curtain call for the temple. The temple is over. And in fact, you know, if you're just a regular reader, um, you know, if you have a curtain that's torn in two, you know, you, you know the symbolism is, well, whatever that curtain had, it's over. It's done. And that's what happened here. Jesus gives a loud cry, and the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is over. The tenants are destroyed. Because, you know, three days later, when Jesus is resurrected, he's resurrected and appointed as a high priest of the New Covenant. There's no more high priest of the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant's gone. It's done. So that's the point that Jesus is making when he says that the owner is going to come destroy the tenants. Now, what, will the, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, uh, New Testament commentators, they go, all around, they go all over the place about the word others. You know, who are these others? Um, are the others the twelve? The twelve disciples are the others, you know, uh, Gentiles, because Jesus doesn't say Gentiles here. I don't think we really have to worry about who exactly the others are. And the reason why is because we, we understand that there is a new temple, that Jesus has been made high priest of the new covenant, and there is a new temple, and the new temple is the body of Christ. Now, let me point this out. Let me show you why the others is, the idea is a reconstituted Israel. Paul, in the letter of, to Galatians, and this is post-resurrection, so he's writing, and he says this in verse 15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. Now let me stop there a minute and let's talk about this. When Jesus is in the temple talking to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, circumcision was everything because they were the covenant people and all those guys have been circumcised under Abraham's covenant. But here we are post-resurrection with Paul writing and Paul says circumcision or uncircumcision they don't mean anything. And he, and he writes, but a new creation is everything. And look, look what the next verse says. And for those who will follow this rule, this rule that new creation is everything, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. That's the reconstituted Israel. That is the, quote, others because we have a new Israel with a new high priest. Hallelujah. And it's so great. Okay, now let's go back up um, and take a look at the last part of this parable. 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus says, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. So what's that about? I mean, this has nothing to do with tenants or vineyards. This is about a building. So why? What's Jesus doing here? Well, actually, it all fits. Because when he says, I w- the owner will give the vineyard to others, this is a description of resurrection, and it's a description of the others. The stone that the builders rejected. In fact, you, might, you, you could even put in here the stone that the tenants rejected. The sun that the tenants rejected has become the cornerstone. See, Jesus is standing with these uh, Jews, with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in what? In the temple. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking about a new temple where he is the cornerstone. And he says, well, and he's quoting, uh, this is Psalm 118. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. This was the Lord's doing. This was God's plan. You know, the interesting thing is, this was God's plan all along. Um, And God's plan contemplated the fact that uh, Israel was going to hoard salvation to itself, to herself. So Jesus Uh, it's the same line of thought, even though they're two vastly different things. You have a vineyard, and then you've got a new temple. Now, let me... um, Let me talk about this new temple a minute. You have Paul writing in Ephesians 2.21, in him, meaning in Jesus, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he's what Paul's writing about is how the body of Christ is the new temple. Uh, you can go to Peter, and Peter talks about being living stones. And, you know, what's that all about? Well, he's referring back to the temple, that the temple now has been replaced with the body of Christ, and we as believers are living stones of that temple And God's Spirit is within us, the way it was within the temple in Israel. Pretty cool stuff. I mean, this is is just really cool how this parable has so many nuances to it, so many layers and allusions. Now, let me read this because I've got it in my notes, and I want you to see... um, I want you to see how Peter took the very same verse, the stone that Jesus is quoting and how he used it. In Acts 4, 11, and 12, Peter is speaking to the Jews. And this is post-resurrection, and Peter is preaching, you know, New Testament Christianity, and he says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and it goes on to, to talk about the man, the crippled man that was healed, And Peter says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God resurrected from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. See? See that? You can look it up. You can see it right there in black and white. He says, rejected by you. By whom? By Israel. Rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. And then look at what he says here. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he is speaking to Jews. So, so really, you go back to Mark saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, really, Jesus the Christ, Son of God. He's showing that in his gospel, in this parable, by writing it down, recording it, and giving the emphasis and all of that, how he wrote it, is that Israel rejected the Lord, and we have a new covenant this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. It's great. So that concludes the message today. Um, the thing to do is maybe to listen to this message a couple times so you understand the train of thought. You know, a big thing about Bible study is really understanding the word. It's not just reading it and doing devotions but it's understanding it so you can walk in it. Because when you understand the word, when you understand the redemption story, you see that this isn't cotton candy Christianity. Um, this is a stout gospel. And what it does is it strengthens your faith where you can uh, better embody the gospel. You know, Paul calls us living letters of Christ. I think some of us, only have a couple lines in us. There are other ones of us who walk and talk the gospel, and we have a lot longer lines in us. So go back, uh, read the word, get this in you, so you can walk a little bit, um, walk a little bit stronger in the word and in the word of your testimony. That's it today. Thank you for listening, and God bless.